All right, and we are rolling. So welcome to the show, everyone. Uh, I'm Henry, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Tom. Hello. And we have a very special guest today, our first ever guest on the show, uh, another buddy of ours from college. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Ken. Hi, nice to meet you all. All right. And so we're just going to get right off the bat here, uh, starting with you, Tom. Are you cynical about Dune? So I don't know if I'm so much cynical about Dune. Uh, For the record, for everybody listening, I haven't watched the 2020 slash 2021 Dune. And uh, my experience with Dune is that I read the book a while ago. Um, I read the, the first book and Dune Messiah. And I also watched the Lynch version of Dune. And so I don't know if I'm so much cynical about Dune. I don't know if it's fair for me to say that I'm cynical about Denis Villeneuve's version when I haven't seen it. But I guess to sort of echo what I said in the Bond episode is that I'm sort of disappointed that this like grand sci-fi experience of, of the modern year is like just another adaptation. In fact, it's like a yeah. reboot of a reboot of an adaptation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I kind of wish that we could jump forward to sort of like new 21st century storytelling. That's the phrase that I used before. Um, mm-hmm. And as a quick example, before I pass this off to Henry or Ken, who want to actually get into the meat of Dune, I've been reading a, a sci fantasy series called The Locked Tomb. And while it has like its own problems and everything, uh, I feel like it has a really good attitude for the 21st century. I don't the, the way that I would say it is that I don't feel like it's something that is just trying to like stand on the backs of something that already came before. It kind of feels like it's its own thing. It's like this mix of sci-fi with like necromancy, and there's a lot of like modern sort of uh, attitude things going on in it. Um, the, the voice is very 21st century, very Zoomer, I would say. Uh, mm. So I kind of wish that we could get more stuff like that coming out and less stuff like books that were from the 1960s. But with that said, uh, I'm just as curious as everybody else listening to hear uh, Henry and Ken's opinions about the new Dune. So I'm going to pass it off to whoever wants to grab it. So I'll just say real quickly to kind of uh, echo your point there. Uh, So I guess just to give everybody a little background, I've never read the original Dune novel. I know a lot about it just by osmosis, but I've never actually had the time to sit down and read it uh, front to back. Um, But I have seen the Lynch version, both Lynch versions, actually, the theatrical cut and the extended cut. I saw the sci-fi TV miniseries that came out back in 2000. I saw the new film, obviously. I saw the documentary about the version from the 1970s that never got made. So I do know a lot about the Dune lore, even though I've never actually had the time to sit down and read the source material. Um, That being said, I do like Dune overall. I actually wrote a post about this on my blog uh, not too long ago, like comparing and contrasting all the different adaptations and what I like and dislike about each. And there are definitely things I like and dislike about the newest adaptation, which we'll get into. But before we do that, uh, just to kind of echo your sentiments, Tom, I do agree that like overall sci-fi really needs to like move forward from stuff like Dune. And the reason I say this is because just last night, actually, I was kind of stumbling upon 
a bunch of booktuber YouTube videos. Uh, and one in particular, I can't remember the individual's name, but he mainly focuses on sci-fi novels and he analyzes those on his YouTube channel. And he was talking about newer sci-fi novels that he predicts will become classics in like 80 years down the road. And he was describing each of them. There was one called Child's Ladder. There was one called Hyperion, which I know is a little older. He was defining like 80s onward as modern sci-fi. Gotcha. And um, yeah, a lot of those sounded like way more interesting than Dune. (laughs) And I was kind of thinking as I was watching that video, like, why can't we see these movies instead? And when will we ever get around to seeing these things, if ever? But, you know, um, uh, I imagine everything has its time and place and we'll eventually get around to, like, you know, more interesting kind of audience can sink our teeth into. But um, I guess, you know, we'll just have to wait and see how that comes about. But uh, well, with that being said, uh, Ken go ahead, is like a total Ken is like a total newcomer to Dune, right? Like you. That's exactly what I was about to say. Yeah. I was about to turn it over yeah. to Ken because so you, have... you came into this blind, right, Ken? Absolutely, completely blind. I knew really nothing about Dune in general. So what did you think of the movie then? So I enjoyed it. It was definitely very atmospheric. Um, Mm -hmm. I thought there were some interesting concepts. Um, Definitely felt like it was almost cut short. Like they took the book and somewhere along the line, they kind of like caught it off. And I'm like, huh, the middle, beginning and end kind of feel like a little bit um, out of place in an overarching story. Um, but I figured that probably it's just like they couldn't make a, the movie too long. But overall, I enjoyed it. Um, I did have many questions that uh, thankfully Henry was able to answer me with his more extended knowledge. Um, but yeah, I feel like there were some aspects of the movie kind of glossed over a little bit, explained enough for you to like be on board on the story, but maybe not enough for you to be like, yeah, I understand the world of Dune. Right. And did you kind of feel that like what you were watching was something that felt a little like outdated as far as like its themes or anything like that? Or did it feel like fresh, you know, the sort of things uh, you're trying to say? I, I definitely um, don't think that it was fresh necessarily, but mm-hmm. I also think that some of the story ideas of like, you know, people trying to invade another world or like as a parallel to our world like a country take their resources not always understanding the culture um fights for power those are kind of like themes that usually like go well in any like yeah yeah Yeah, Mm -hmm. they're they're timeless um and i felt like in some ways um and and you have pointed that out at some point after the we after the movie when we were talking that they try modernizing a little bit by giving a bit more um uh, a bit more presence to the female characters, a bit more diversity. Yeah, yeah they did do that. Uh, yeah, so while I don't think it was 100% fresh, I think it was still acceptable for 2021. Mm-hmm. And to go off what Tom was saying with like, yeah, kind of like movies, depending a lot on like a pre-existing backbone. I think it's not just sci-fi in general, like uh, popular media nowadays is too scared to almost be original. Um, yeah. I think that, yeah, yeah, most movies or TV shows are based on like a comic or a book or a video game. And they just are banking that like, well, this original piece was successful. Maybe if we just copy it, even if it's not the best adaptation, we'll have a, a pre-existing fan base. So not to get too off topic, but I think that like, uh, I really noticed that when Disney started making all their remakes after Maleficent with the Disney. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like at one point they, you know, I'm a big fan of, uh, the Tron Legacy movie, even though, like, you know, it's very controversial, but I really enjoyed it, and I was looking forward to the third movie. 
and years, eventually a decade passed and like it just, it never came. Yeah. And what I was looking into it apparently was that Disney kind of like was losing a lot of money with like original ideas, like, uh, like the Neutron movie and like um, uh, Tomorrowland, um, some other movies that just like they were trying to go for something new versus, you know, uh, Cinderella was making like almost a billion dollars. So yeah. I think that like uh, companies eventually were just like, why risk it? Yeah. Well, to be fair, uh, Tomorrowland is based on a theme park ride and Tron Legacy is, I, I guess it's sort of a reboot, but it's technically a, a very long in the coming sequel to a Tron movie that came out way back in the early 80s. But I understand what you're kind of trying to say. That's still not quite the same thing as like the safe choices like Cinderella, Beauty and the Beast, right, you know, right. Star Wars, you know, you know, like and pretty much anything else that they own, really. So, yeah. No, it definitely, um, that definitely uh, is a good point to bring up. Kind of doubling back on what you were saying before, uh, when I asked you about the freshness factor and you mentioned how they did kind of updated for like 2021 standards with uh, a little bit more diversity and inclusivity, if that's even a word. Um, <laughs> one, one other thing I did notice is that even though I've never read the source material, I know that the book relies heavily on like internal monologues and, uh, it's basically written in an omniscient kind of narration style, which yeah, is absolutely. like the narrator knows things that the characters don't. So like you as the audience are learning things before the characters themselves even do that. The, the book basically like telegraphs all the twists ahead of time and things like that. And that was a very popular style of writing way back in the day, but it kind of hasn't really held up over time. Nowadays, people don't really write in omniscient style anymore. They, they prefer to write novels in a way where like you, the audience are learning things as the characters themselves are learning them. Like the characters act as the vessel between the audience and the world. And uh, that really translates into modern day movies. And Tom, I don't know. Do you care about spoilers for the new movie, Tom? Even though you haven't <laughs> uh, seen it. No, no, not at all. Okay. So in the new movie, they definitely changed. There's no internal monologues. There's no, they don't telegraph things ahead of time to the audience. Like, uh, Ken, I don't know if you knew this, but in the book, you, you remember how in the movie the the doctor was the one who was the the traitor. He was the yeah. So in the book, that's told to you like way ahead of time, and it's also told <laughs> to you ahead of time in like the all the old versions, the David Lynch movie, the two thousands miniseries. Like you get you learn ahead of time. At least I think it was in the two thousands miniseries. I that one my memory is a little hazy on, but in the Lynch movie, it definitely is either version, the extended cut or the theatrical cut. So. Like things like that are like told to the audience in advance. And I guess for me, having grown up in a more like modern age of storytelling, like that kind of really sucks the tension out of the air. <laughs> so I kind of liked how in the new movie they didn't do that. Like they actually made the twist feel like a genuine twist, even though I knew it was coming. It was just the seeing it presented that way for newcomers like yourself, Ken. I thought that was very uh, refreshing. It definitely that felt like a breath of fresh air to me. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a pretty smart decision uh, with, like, I think that old narration style kind of relied too heavily, at least with respect to nowadays, on, like, dramatic irony of, like, the audience already knows what's coming. You're kind of, like, the audience is, the tension is supposed to be the audience scared yes, for yes. the character to learn this whereas nowadays the modern sensibility is the kind of people want to be in the story themselves as opposed right. to an audience member right. so the logic has shifted that like you have as much information or maybe only a little bit more information 
yeah. like than the the character right. and i actually think that's like a pretty cool change that admittedly that makes me a little bit more interested in in watching the the new dune movie i'm mm-hmm. glad to hear that they did sort of like little freshness updates like that because i guess more broadly what i was thinking of when i was when i was critiquing it for like oh this is very 20th century storytelling is that uh obviously like the the monomyth or like other people may know it as like the hero's journey is like a core thing in humans like in human culture and storytelling for a reason but it's also like i've always equated dune with basically just being like sci-fi or slightly more sci-fi because it's kind of sci fantasy as well like sci-fi lord of the rings and uh, for me I'm not actually that huge of a fan of Lord of the Rings. I find it a tad dry. And uh, mm-hmm. I guess in the same way, but that's because I'm biased because like I grew up with, like my mono myth was Avatar The Last Airbender. And I, I really like Avatar The Last Airbender. But mm-hmm. as soon as you see the mono myth like sort of repeated, you just go, oh, well, Lord of the Rings is just, avatar the last airbender but there are hobbits and a ring and the fire lord is sauron and whatnot Mm. and it's it's not that you don't have like respect for what came before it's that it's kind of just inherently like you're seeing the same story told but with a different coat but with that said i do like that denis villeneuve like actually tried to update the way dune is told because that's yeah. a big weakness of the book for a modern audience is that the book is kind of out there. Everything yeah. is delivered in internal monologues. You uh, yeah, you know everything ahead of time. It's very trippy. Everybody's having hallucinations, all that sort of thing. Yep. Uh, like that's how most of the exposition is delivered. Um, mm-hmm. So that is pretty cool that he, he changed that. Yeah. Another thing he kind of changed to make it fit with modern sensibilities is that he left a lot of the world building out. He gave you enough world building to kind of get a sense of like what these people are all about, but he didn't like overdo it. Like there's no explanation of like how there was like a Terminator robot war in the 8,000 years between present day and when the book takes place. And that's why they're all feudal. You know, they kind of left that out. And uh, for me personally, I, I prefer it that way because I'm okay with kind of using just the a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away type of excuse for pretty much everything I see. Like just kind of telling myself, like, it's okay if this doesn't all make sense. It doesn't need to make sense. I, you know, like as long as the emotional context is there, that's all I need. So like the Benny Gesserit, I don't need to like know their origin story and how they're like descendants of people who like sniffed oodles of spice or whatever that is you know what i mean like i'm okay with just saying like okay they're space witches i got it they're there's they're like weird space jedi ladies i got it you know like i'm okay i don't need to know why they use swords you know like i and the movie kind of it goes with that mindset it doesn't feel the need to kind of spoon feed you all this stuff and that was another aspect of it that i appreciated and to Um, be fair kind of like not some of some of those things kind of like uh encourage you to like De- uh, delve deeper into the lore, try to like look more about it or be excited for another movie right. uh, that might explain a bit more. Like some of the mystery does add intrigue to it, I'd say. Yeah, did, is that how you felt, Kent, since you kind of went into it blind? Did you, like walking out of it, were you like thinking like, wow, I want to know more about who these Benny Gesserit people are and, and all that kind oh, of stuff? Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, I want to kind of know more about the history of the houses, kind of like uh, the whole um, 
imperial system they have, like mm -hmm. um, how long has the emperor been on power. And I know that like I didn't need to know too many details about it to really enjoy the core of the story. So right. I agree that um, even going in blind, I do appreciate some things like the movie not wasting too much time on that and knowing that they have to focus on their characters and where the story is trying to go. Right. Would you say, Ken, that you're like pretty excited for Dune Part 2? Um, I don't know if excited would be the word. Um, I'm intrigued. I'll definitely watch it, but I wouldn't be uh, having sleepless nights thinking what's going to happen next. <laughs> mm -hmm. Okay. That, I, yeah, yeah, that seems like I, I, I think I see where you're at. It's like the movie, the movie caught your attention, but it's not like, I guess it's not like the, the end game to Infinity War or whatever sort of thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that'd be, gotcha. that'd be a bit tough. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> now that actually brings up an interesting point that I wanted to say because Ken, you brought up when a few minutes ago when you were doing like your initial review of it that the ending didn't feel like a proper ending to you, that it, it didn't have like a coherent beginning, middle, and end. That's kind of one of the the weak spots of this film. And to be yeah. fair, that's not entirely the director's fault because he wanted to do this as two parts, but the because the book itself is just way too big and way too dense to crunch into one installment. It didn't work with the Lynch version. It's not going to work now. And the studio agreed to that, but they didn't green light part two. You, you, they told him like, you have to make part one first, then we're only going to green light part two. If part one makes enough money initially. So he kind of admitted in an interview where he had to try to structure the movie in a way where it, it leaves room for the continuation, but at the same time still kind of stands on its own. And his sort of solution for that is that towards the end of the movie, and to be fair, this is in the midpoint of the book, when Paul and Jessica are in the desert right after Duke Leto dies, um, Paul has all these trippy visions of what his whole future is going to be like. He sees that he's going to, you know, uh, join up with the Fremen. He's going to get with Zendaya. He's going to... I like that I keep calling her character Zendaya. Whenever Tom and I have these conversations on the side, I never call her Chani. I just call her Zendaya. I completely forgot her real name. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, to be fair, she's barely in this movie. Like, maybe in the next one, if she's more prominent, then it'll start to make more sense to, in my brain, to call her Chani instead of Zendaya. But, um, or Chaney, however you're supposed to pronounce it. But, uh, yeah. you know, he sees his whole future, that there's going to be, like, a whole holy war in his name. So he is going to defeat the Emperor and all that. But the cost is that a lot of innocent people are going to die in the process. It's, like, this sort of gray area of, like, being a hero is not always a good thing. Blah, blah, blah. I get it. And I liked that, it, you know, Villeneuve really leaned hard into those foreshadowing moments, those flash forwards, because it allowed for this movie to stand on its own a little more. Like, even though I'm happy we're getting a part two, if for whatever reason, a part two never happened, I wouldn't be too sad about it because this movie still gave me enough to know like where the story would go from here. But th at the same time, that's a good thing and a bad thing because the bad part of that is that now that we kind of know where it's going, it, it's it sucks a little bit of the excitement out of part two you know what i mean because now that we saw those future visions and know that like paul's gonna win and all that like it uh it, it's again it, it kind of sucks some of the tension out of the air i guess i mean it'll be interesting to see how he does it for those you know who aren't familiar with the book or if they change things between the book and the movie but just the kind of the fact that we know that that's the end game now it uh I don't know. It's a little weird. It's a, this movie definitely is an anomaly in the way it was made and, you know, and how it was adapted and all that stuff. Would you say that? So I remember, Henry, you when when you first saw the movie, you were explaining to me that 
a change that he made was that some of the visions that good old Timmy Chevrolet, <laughs> as Paul says, like sees, are wrong. That, that is, is true. Like, yeah, he sees he sees Chani slash Zendaya like killing him or threatening him or something. She kills uh, him in one of his visions. Yeah, and he sees uh that dude uh, Jamis, I think his name is. He, yeah, in Jamis his visions. In his visions leading up to when he joins the Fremen, Jamis comes across as like a very nice guy and very friendly and like, I'm going to mentor you. So you're led to think that Jamis is going to be this super cool dude. And then when he actually finally meets him towards the end of the movie, Jamis turns out to be a huge asshole who wants to kill Paul. <laughs> it's it's the opposite of uh, what, you know, Paul envisioned. So, yeah, that is true. Having some of the visions show up as false allowed for the audience to understand that the visions themselves are a little bit of an unreliable narrator. So that does help to maintain some tension going yeah, into the cartoon. I was going to say, like, I don't, I don't remember that being the case in the book. I'm sure that there's probably some hardcore Dune person out there saying like, what? No, those scenes happened verbatim in the book or whatever, but I don't <laughs> remember those scenes. I seem to remember that basically all of Paul's, visions sort of playing into that sort of omniscient storytelling that we were talking about are basically like word for word what happens Mm -hmm. um and it's more like his interpretations of things are a little off sometimes but uh i guess that does leave room for villeneuve to maybe break from the story a tiny bit and make some sort of plot twist happen that's unique to the movie i don't I know do wonder he, yeah i don't know if he wants to do that because i know that he's sort of like a hardcore dune fan and he is. says like he really wanted to adapt it basically verbatim so i don't know if he would change the plot significantly but i guess it leaves as you just said the there's a little bit of tension left over because they're unreliable narrators i guess yeah. yeah, and another way that I feel like you can interpret the visions is that, like, what you see in the visions isn't exactly what is going to happen. But maybe in a twisted way, it's it's supposed to be a lesson. Like, uh, when Timothée Chalamet, when Paul was uh, fighting the guy who was supposed to be his mentor, maybe he wasn't as nice as in the vision, but him having to fight him kind of taught him a lesson of um, you can't hold back in the journey you're about to go through. You have to fight till the end. Zendaya kind of like uh, betraying him or killing him can maybe just represent like him being hurt by this person um, that like he's going on a journey with. Like love or whatever, yeah. Right, like maybe it's more supposed to be a representation of sentiments and overall lessons more so than like what's actually going to happen. I like that interpretation of it, yeah. That's a cool way of thinking about it, actually. Thanks. Yeah, that does, uh, that's also like a... That's also like a cool if if that is, you know, how we're supposed to take it. I mean, it's up to interpretation, but like that is another sort of um, minor freshness factor is that 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 probably isn't a very like appealing thing for 20, 20th century storytelling of like, oh, it's about more of a feeling than like the literal interpretation. Whereas I feel like that's actually a, a smart move to do in 2021 is sort of make the visions more like metaphorical as opposed to you're supposed to look at them like literally and they're wrong or something. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's really interesting how they allowed him to make this without having the second half of it adapted. I do know that when this book was originally published, it was actually originally like two separate novellas that were serialized through magazines. So I can understand the sentiment there. 
And, you know, given the fact that it's just so big to crunch into two and a half hours, you know, I get it. But I'm just kind of surprised that, like, they didn't allow him to do it, like, in a Lord of the Rings style way where he could actually film both movies at the same time. I, I feel like had they allowed him to do that, I don't know, like, a lot of this would make a lot more sense to talk about. Because it's just kind of weird. It's the more I think about this movie, the more it's hard to analyze it because it's just not really a full movie. It's it's half of a movie, <laughs> half of a very long four hour movie. Yeah. And maybe, uh, Henry, you're more knowledgeable uh, about this than me. Um, but how does the finances compare? Like uh, Lord of the Rings, how expensive was it to make the entire trilogy versus um, if they were to make like two of these movies in a row? I wonder if like as time has gone on and we have dependent more on CGI, it's kind of gotten more expensive to make movies. Well, Lord of the, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's definitely true. And a lot of the Lord of the Rings was still done very practically. And they used like clever lighting and tricks like that to get away with uh, keeping the budget somewhat minimal. But from what I understand, uh, when they originally started shooting Lord of the Rings, all three parts of it at the same time, mm-hmm. they underestimated how much it was actually going to end up costing them in the end. Because throughout the entire shooting process, there was a lot of problems that just kept happening out of nowhere, like actors getting injured and just all kinds of crazy things that happen left and right so and then they ended up having to do massive reshoots towards the end so by the time it did all get wrapped up it ended up being way more of an undertaking that i think peter jackson and his crew initially realized it was going to be i'm pretty sure there was a point there like in the middle of filming that shit where he must have been really stressed out and thinking like oh my god what have i gotten myself into i'm biting off (laughs) more than i could chew here but thankfully for them it all it did all work out you know in the end I think that uh, the I I once watched a documentary about the making of those movies, but it's so long ago that I can't fully remember. But I think I remember Peter Jackson originally wanted to only do two movies or even just one movie. And it was the producer, like the head of the studio, New Line Cinema, who encouraged him to do all three, because I think the head of the studio happened to also be a massive fan of the books and wanted Mm -hmm. to see it done as accurately as possible. So it's, I guess it was the fact that, like, the people involved with making that movie, like, really believed in the source material that they were willing to, like, take that risk. And I'm not, no disrespect to Warner Brothers, you know, the people making Dune, but I have a feeling they're probably not as confident in the source material. <laughs> and, and to be fair, like, after the Lynch movie bombed 40 years ago and all, I could see why they, like, are thinking, like, Dune is, like, an untrusted brand, you know what I mean? But, you know, hopefully now they have more faith in it. Yeah, yeah. It also coming at an interesting age where we're recovering from the pandemic and yeah, now that doesn't like, help. Yeah. like streaming service and like yeah. while premiering on theaters, it's it's a lot of like unknown variables. Yeah, yeah. No, that definitely didn't help either. In a way, though, maybe the pandemic actually for the movie, not you know, just for the movie specific. Yeah. Because maybe had it come out at a normal time, it, the movie as of right now only made like I believe around three hundred or four hundred million dollars, which in today's world post pandemic that's actually really good. But if it made only that kind of money in a pre pandemic world, that probably would be considered a failure, and maybe part two never would have gotten green lit in a pre pandemic yeah. world. You know, you never know. That's one thing I'll add is that I like Villeneuve as a filmmaker and I think he did a good job adapting this, you know, like staying faithful to the themes of the book, but not like to the point where he was willing to not, you know, uh, adapt it for modern sensibilities. But I do think like when he threw that massive temper tantrum last year, I thought that was pretty uncalled for when he was, you know, like when they announced that they were going to put the movie out in theaters and on streaming at the same time. 
I understand that he was upset about not being like warned in advance about it, but like at the end of the day, like he Dune is not his. Like he's adapting somebody else's work, and he doesn't own. He's being loaned the license to those characters and those worlds by Warner Brothers. And as shitty of a, of a company as they may or may not be, at the end of the day, it's their stuff. It's their call to make, you know, and. Also, they're, you know, he was acting like they're basically not even going to allow his movie to be screened in theaters, which wasn't the case at all. Like, if people wanted to go see his movie in theaters, they still had the option to do that. They just also had the option to watch it at home if they wanted to. And I don't know, like, who's he to decide how people watch his movie or not? I, I just hint people like him and Nolan. I really can't stand those kinds of filmmakers that are like, oh, you have to see my movie in theaters. It's the only way to see it. You know, just grow up. Well- well, talking about 20th century versus 21st century sensibilities, I have a feeling that if movie making continues, you know, the way it's existed since the early 20th century, that attitude is going to be something that goes away because the theater experience is not really something that's particularly relevant to like the Netflix generation. Right. Uh, you know, like, don't, don't get me wrong. I've I've been considering seeing Dune myself. I probably maybe should have seen it before this conversation but oh well uh is like i've sort of been like going back and forth in my head it's like do i want to see it in the theater or do i want to like check out hbo max and watch it that way and i'm i'm it's one of those things where i'm just like why would i see it in a theater i don't yeah. know like, i'm not really i don't i'm not a person who particularly like cares about that like surround sound right. darkness sort of thing the last movie that i saw in theaters was parasite and i don't think that parasite is really a movie that benefits from being in theaters at all maybe dune is but uh you know no, it's like i there was nothing while i was watching the movie because ken and i did see it in theaters there was a. Uh nothing there that made me feel like you know oh my god i'm so glad i saw this in theaters you know like you said the surround sound and stuff that maybe that does something for like people who are like audiophiles but it it didn't do anything for me no well i mean i guess with like a hans zimmer soundtrack maybe that's worth it but i don't know (laughs) i suppose what did you think ken did you like were you happy to have seen it in theaters instead of on streaming like the do you think stuff like the surround sound and stuff added to the experience or I mean, definitely, yeah, the sound helps. I mean, the the main appeal of me going to movie theater really is uh, the focus of it. Like, when I'm watching a movie at home, if I'm not super excited about it, the temptation of just kind of, like, browsing my phone quickly or doing something else or cooking while watching the movie, like, seeps in. Whereas when you go to, like, a movie theater, you're there to watch the movie. That's all you're doing. So for a movie that was uh, very, like, lore-packed like Dune, I appreciate it kind of being in a movie theater and just being like super focused on it but that's just a me thing like uh mm-hmm. i know that a lot of people can just focus it at home um but to me like when i really want to consume the movie uh it really benefits of being a, at a movie theater that's fair yeah that, that is fair i wanted to i wanted to like coming from i kind of wanted to shift topics a tiny bit back towards like june as its story yeah Be, coming coming from the perspective of reading the book and seeing one uh, okay-ish adaptation of the movie. Uh, I was really curious for you guys. What? Who was your favorite character coming out of the Villeneuve adaptation? Well, 
really like all the focus is on Paul. So, uh, <laughs> but uh, no, actually, I did like uh, Jessica, uh, and I liked Rebecca Ferguson's uh, performance there. And, and I thought Oscar Isaac did a good job with uh, Lido, like really making him seem like a nice guy and everything like that. But I, I think if I really had to pick one, I think uh, Jessica was the one who interested me the most. Okay, yeah. interesting. How about Ken? you? Ken? Um, probably Leto. I just like um, the feeling of like, yeah, like almost like he's supposed to be the hero, but um, the chosen one is still like uh, Paul um, and him trying to do the right thing while also being a wise and good ruler. I did enjoy that. I have to say, though, personally, uh, to me, none of the characters stood out too much beyond what they were supposed to represent. Paul being like the uh, the Jesus uh, like, yeah. the Jesus guy, the Messiah. Yeah. Uh, Lito being like, you know, the the good guy that you're supposed to root for, the villains being the villains, um, Rebecca Ferguson's character being like a mentor and the mother at the same time. Um, at least in this one movie, I didn't feel um, anyone like developed too much more from what they were supposed to be as an archetype. But perhaps like as more movies come out, like I'll get to know them better. Like uh, Duncan, uh, yeah, he was just the badass. <laughs> I felt. Yeah, yeah, it's it's kind of interesting that that's sort of um I remember in the lead up to Dune back when it was going to be Dune 2020 instead of Dune 2021. Mm-hmm. Uh I remember talking with somebody about it and saying like, "Oh, well Dune is very it's like an incredibly lore-rich story." Like in terms of like if you want to be immersed in a world that's been developed from the ground up like dune is a great choice for that and then i was and and that's sort of like a comparison as i said earlier i feel like dune is sort of the sci-fi lord of the rings is that lord of the rings is one of those franchises where if you walk away from it and you ask people who their favorite character is they go uh well (laughs) i guess frodo but like and then sometimes people are like well Samwise because he's the actual hero and Frodo just doesn't do anything uh he just <laughs> walks along um and I, I feel like I feel like that's it's probably a product of that like age of storytelling like the focus was significantly less on characters but I was really curious to hear you guys's opinions coming out of it because I was wondering if they did anything for any of the characters to like really make it a little bit more character driven, which is a very modern sensibility. Yeah. But it sounds like they did sort of the, it sounds like they kind of played it truer to the source material in terms of the characters and made it like the characters are sort of like pieces on a chessboard. They move around. You're not really interested in the pieces. You know what they do. A knight moves up three into the left or right. Uh, queen can move all across like you know what the pieces do but you don't really care about the personality you care about the game that is being played with the pieces yeah so i was really curious because that's been a really big thing holding me back from watching dune is that i i'm a person who's like very biased towards character driven storytelling and i don't care that much about world building uh especially when i already know a lot of the world building so, I mean, I guess in that way, it kind of confirms a little bit of a suspicion of mind. But yeah. obviously, that doesn't mean that it's automatically, like, bad or anything like that. It just, uh, I'm surprised that they didn't do anything very specific to, like, yeah. freshen the characters. I, sorry that I'm saying yeah a lot. But I know I'm, I'm agreeing <laughs> with everything you're saying. But yeah. the, the only... Too. 
The only moderate thing I could think of is, again, this is probably why I thought Jessica was my favorite, is that from seeing the older adaptations, even though she is very knowledgeable, um, she kind of comes across as a little cowardice in the older versions. Like, she kind of whimpers and cries a lot. I remember in the Lynch version, like, when her and Paul are running in the desert. And I don't know, just, like, I understand that that might, on one hand, make these characters seem more realistic because they're on this very alien world and, you know, like, they don't really like know what they're getting themselves into but contrasting that with paul being all stoic all the time kind of made that very jarring where he's like uh in that sequence like when uh paul and jessica are like lost in the desert there's a little more nuance where like jessica you know like obviously like she knows she's a little bit out of her element but she's not like whimpering or cowering in fear and on the flip side of that paul is not just like completely stoic like he shows a little more emotion like he gets like genuinely angry at one point and i thought uh timothy chalamet really like sold that scene so i think um and i guess i'm always pointing to that sequence because in this particular movie since they're only adapting the first half of the book that's like the beating heart of the story is paul and jessica's survival and cult which culminates with them joining the fremen so uh that for me like that needed to work and i think that villeneuve must have been thinking along those same lines. Cause I think he really focused in on those scenes in particular. That's about the closest I think they got to like making the story feel a little more, I don't know if character driven is the right word, but just making the characters feel a little more likable and more like real people, I suppose. But like in a way where it's not too jarring. Yeah. I'm trying to find the words to describe what I'm saying, but I think you get the gist of what I'm getting at. Right. Yeah. I, th- I think I know what you mean is like, they sort of, they sort of freshened it from being like, hero man and insecure woman on journey through desert which is yeah. like exactly how the story would have been pl- well, is is exactly how the story played out in the 60s like right. uh, you know there is no like female lead in a bond movie until very recently for a very like for a specific reason yeah uh, their modern sensibilities are modern for that reason uh, so that that is good to hear. Uh, something that was kind of interesting uh, when I was watching some of the, like the trailers when they were coming out was that it just felt like everyone was always in stoicism mode, which is not a. I'm glad to hear that there are scenes with like a little bit more of Paul getting like angry and like it's sold well because like one of the things that always bugs me about acting in the last like decade is that like the default mode is like stoicism like everybody is just like oh well i'm i'm on camera so my goal is to look cool first and (laughs) foremost and then if my character has emotions i will layer those on top and everything i saw from trailers like i think that they had a trailer that was a conversation with Paul and Duncan, where it's the scene where Paul is talking about how he had a vision of Duncan dying. And yeah. Duncan's like, oh, don't worry about that. Dreams are dreams. Like, you have to focus on what is happening when you're awake. And, like, I don't know what it was. Obviously, interpretation of acting is very subjective. I'm sure there are plenty of people out there who thought that that scene was really well done. But for me, I was watching it and I was just like, wow paul just told his friend that he saw him die in a dream and his friend went eh, and mm-hmm. he like showed no emotion he yeah that went, part like, did feel you're, a little you're laughing inhumane. at me. it's like yeah, yeah, yeah he is laughing at you bud fight back like i don't know it's it's uh 
it's good to hear that there are scenes where Paul kind of bumped up his level of emotion because Paul is in, in the book he is 100% hero man he is yeah. protagonist man there is no emotional weakness to him he is hero man so I'm glad that they see that there's a little bit more depth but I didn't get that from like the scenes I have seen in the movie otherwise yeah I remember that one scene specifically where he breaks down I was actually thinking why wasn't this in the trailer <laughs> but uh, Ken what did you think of that scene in particular or just some of the other scenes in that sequence like did, the, did that stuff work for you uh, like when they were talking about the dream of uh, Duncan dying? No, no, no. Uh, when Paul and Jessica were trapped in the tent and Paul... Oh, yeah. Him. I really like that. Yeah, I was going to point out that I agree with you that that kind of became like the heart of the movie because yeah. it, it did multiple things. So, like, yeah, it developed the characters a bit more. It kind of like showed them like what were their worries, um, how strong their bond was. And the biggest thing is that Dune is, well, about Dune, about the, the planet, about how it's an unrelenting desert. And for us to actually get a couple of minutes of like them seeing surviving how harsh the environment is, it's really it really does like more like world building while also developing uh, the bond of the characters. And it just I, I do agree. I saw it as the heart of the movie. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, I'm... that's really good to hear because, I mean, I don't, I don't think I remember that exact scene in, uh, in. Like when I from the from the book, I'm kind of surprised that they didn't show that in the trailer because it sounds like a cool character moment to have. Yeah, um, especially out of context, because if you kind of have a character showing anger in a trailer and you don't know the surrounding context, you're you're still saving the story for the audience. Whereas but but while still conveying that there's like emotional stakes. Yeah. But I would say my memory from the book is that I mean it's a little bit different with narration because if if uh, if the author does write like he got angry or whatever, it's like how angry that is is in your mind's eye. Right. Um, right. But uh, <laughs> I don't remember Paul like showing any emotion of any particular significance in the book. So it is like, once again, it's glad to see that they infused a little bit of that in there. So, like why we didn't see any of that in the trailers i think like warner brothers and just kind of big studios in general are like a little out of touch with think you know when they think about what people want versus what people don't want and i think they probably think like people just want to see timothy jalamet looking cool and and looking <laughs> all bad at, you know what i mean so that's those are the moments that end up in the trailers you know and to be fair probably for most casual audiences that is the shit they mainly want to see ken and i made the joke as we were walking out of the movie that like during that whole final sequence where he's fighting jonas and stuff you know their their hairs are like perfect uh their makeup is perfect and like, they're not they're sweating been... yeah, yeah. <laughs> they supposed to have been in the desert for like hours by that point you know at least paul and jessica but, you know or days you know but uh yeah oh yeah they look all, like, like super groomed hollywood actors but that's what they are <laughs> Yeah, yeah, so. that that's the classic um, plight of. Uh, I don't know. I'm always shocked when I watch older movies, and there's like s entire scenes where I'm just like, "Oh my gosh, everyone in this shot is hideous." 
Whereas <laughs> now it's like the opposite in like a movie that comes yeah. out in like 2021. Like the the milkman is a model, the the grocery <laughs> checkout man is a model, mm-hmm. like the person stocking the shelves is a model. Like yeah. you're like, wait, hold on, how are these people doing all of these like low rent jobs when they could just become Instagram models? Like what's going on here? Yeah, but yeah. I mean that's that's I don't know what it is, but yeah, there's a there's a bit of a there's a bit of a hotness crisis in Hollywood, in my opinion, where it's yeah, like that... everybody first and foremost needs to be insanely hot. And then yeah. afterwards, characters are put in place. Yeah, I think that's one of the downsides of modern Hollywood. Like we were talking about some of the advantages of modern sensibilities. I think that's one of the disadvantages. Everything's a little too clean and like filterized now. Because even though overall, I think I do prefer this new version of the movie over the Lynch one. I do miss some of the dirtiness of that Lynch version. And I also miss the color, too. The, the old movie had a lot of color to it. This one, the colors are, like, very muted. I, I know that's Villeneuve's thing, and that's what he was going for, but I don't know. Like, I can't the sky be blue in, like, just one of these shots instead of this <laughs> muted gray? <laughs> or, like, very, like, grayish yellow or whatever it was? <laughs> to be fair, I would say, from what I know of Dune, it mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of the description that is done of the planet is like it's not like uh it's not like an arizona desert where it's like this it's like this contrast of it's like really beautiful but also deadly dune i'm pretty sure is just a hideous planet that is also deadly (laughs) Uh, yeah that's fair it probably does make more sense for the emotional context of the story yeah yeah, but I would agree in general. I do like when color is really creatively used. Not yeah. not to not to reference the thing that everybody has been referencing for the past month, but I feel like Squid Game used really inventive coloring. Like all of mm-hmm. the people who are killing people are in these really colorful peppy suits. And I do generally like that contrast. It would be it would have been cool to see in the dune trailers that they were establishing dune to be more like uh the wasteland in mad max fury road like the Mm. sand is really orange and the sky is really blue and then on top of all that all this like dark sad crap is happening i feel like that would have been a little bit more intriguing but at the same time it sounds like he played it pretty straight to the book which is also has its merits so yeah what did you think ken did you kind of like the color palette of the movie or were you hoping for something a little more colorful? No, I can. I agree that it was a little bit muted. It was uh, kind of like grayish, um, but I, I did feel like it was just like fitting for um, the kind of story and the setting they were in. Like yeah. it wasn't. I don't think it's a story that's supposed to like invoke hope in you like right away or anything like that. It's supposed yeah. to be like it's a harsh world and we have characters trying to survive it. So I thought it was um, it was appropriate kind of what Tom was saying like maybe it didn't like pop out um but I I do I do think it has its merits for just kind of like playing it safe and straight right yeah you know uh definitely pros and cons either way it'll probably grow on me over time if I ever watch the movie again you know? you you're right though about that being I wonder if it's a coincidence or if like it was something that he knew it's like, oh, wait, I have this style and I could make a really good rendition of Dune. But you, you're right that muted things are very like Villeneuve. Uh, yeah. I've seen Arrival and Sicario by him and 
I think Sicario has a little bit more color. It's also like set in the American Southwest and Mexico. So it's like it I think that they chose he the the like the desert landscape in that pops a little bit more. It's like a little bit more of a vibrant yellow orange as opposed to like a very dull like brown gray. Light brown sort of. beige. Yeah. yeah. But overall it seems like Villeneuve movies almost have this weird filter on them that is just like an ugly filter. Uh, yeah. Like, I don't know which is kind of ironic because it's like if you put an ugly filter over hot Timothy Chalamet what happens and apparently he's still hot which is impressive because he had an ugly filter over him but uh yeah it is something that um something in the trailers that i noticed for the adaptation the newest adaptation that i did like actually was that um like the blue eyes are really vibrant yeah, they did do a good job with the eyes in this one. So, like, is, it's almost like the yeah. only color in the world is those eyes, which is actually, like, a pretty interesting stylistic choice. Yeah. And I, I wonder it. if that was intentional now that you say that. Yeah. Yeah. Because, I, I mean, if that was, I mean, I'm sure it was intentional to a certain degree. But if that yeah, was, yeah. like, sort of the aim of, like, I want this to be the main, like, I want it to be this stark contrast. I think that that's a pretty appropriate as Ken was saying, like, I think in that case, the color palette is very appropriate. It's like the world is ugly. You're supposed to feel bad. But then there's like these mystical or unique elements that sort of pop. Uh, right. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, you never know if that's uh, exactly what he was thinking or not. But I do agree that the eyes definitely uh, looked much better in this version than they did as opposed to the previous versions. Because they looked terrible in both the Lynch version and the miniseries version from 2000. Yeah, But that's also yeah, just think... like Hollywood technology catching up, you know. Yeah, it's an interesting hue of blue that um, kind of like makes you think they look beautiful, but also unnatural and almost a bit worrisome. Like uh, like a human shouldn't have such deep, shiny blue eyes. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so that was interesting. Um, and not to get too off topic, but uh, Henry and I were talking about how it's very funny, the whole idea of spice kind of like changing you physically, giving you visions of the future and use for interstellar like travel. I find like... I never knew that if I threw like weed into my car, I could like get it running, you know, like, <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> so it's actually can do everything. The, yeah. The spice doesn't actually make interstellar travel happen. What happens is that all the ships are controlled by these humans that have been inhaling spice for like 4,000 years. And they've become so advanced because the spice also extends your life. And they've become like so advanced that like they could use their spice knowledge to like fold space and time. So it's really like, huh. There's like a seven thousand year old human inside the engine of every single interstellar ship, and they're like just breathing like spice gas. <laughs> they don't even like <laughs> breathe oxygen; they breathe like spice gas, <laughs> and they and that, <laughs> and they're like folding space and time with their brains. Yeah, yeah it, I really think weird. Go over this because I hadn't noticed that at all. Uh, say that again. Did the movie go over this? Because oh I no, didn't no, no. the movie oh. <laughs> the movie left all this shit out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I was gonna say really quick. I think that um, I think that a lot of people, when discussing Dune, say that uh, obviously, like Arrakis is very Middle Eastern sort of inspired. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but I think that a lot of people actually make, I mean, make a mistake. It's up to interpretation here. But I would say make a mistake in that they say it's like, oh, well, spice is oil. I actually think 
that uh, Frank Herbert or Herbert Frank, whichever is, I forget which name, which way it goes, uh, Frank Herbert, uh, I think actually he was going for it being opium. And the reason why I would say that is that specifically Afghanistan is known for being opium and Afghanistan is sort of this like famous, like you can't conquer it sort of thing, like the Fremen. Yes. Um, and also I think that what he was going for is that there's sort of the, there's sort of the sus- like suspicion in the evolution of humans that is that like consuming hallucinogens actually like accelerated our development de- or development of consciousness. Like basically, apes eating magic mushrooms led to developments in consciousness. And I think that what he was going for is that the spice is sort of like the thing that allowed human. It's the catalyst for them getting into space, which is why yeah. everything revolves around it. Yeah. Uh, so I, th- I think that that's what he was going for is that he was sort of creating a combination of opium and like shrooms and that is spice. But I'm sure that there are other people who have analyzed it more deeply than I have and would say that that's wrong. I don't know. No, but... no I think it's all the above personally. I think the primary uh, symbolism is what you just said, uh, opium, acid, you know, all that kind of stuff. But I do think that there is at least a little bit of an oil allegory going on there, especially with how they have like these giant rigs in the desert that are like, you know, harvesting the spice. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. So I think there is at least a little hint of that because things could have multiple meanings. But I do think that like that's more of a secondary meaning. Yeah. And the primary meaning is the is the drug stuff that you were just describing. Yeah. Yeah. Because also I know that he was personally like as a as an individual very fascinated with like hallucinogenics and whatnot unsurprisingly yeah. because yeah dune uh, yes <laughs> but and this was written in like the 60s right right which yeah, is when everybody was doing acid <laughs> <laughs> sounds appropriate <laughs> yeah 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 so i think that the i i think that i think henry you're you're exactly what you just said is correct is he he took inspirations from like everywhere he basically wanted to say like what if there was one resource that was oil a hallucinogen like a technology and and all and those things <laughs> and 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 just a drug a recreational yeah. drug and he basically like combined it and was like imagine how many facets of life would be affected by such a, a product which again is going back to what i said about my opinion sort of being that it's dune is sort of lord of the rings is Dune's lore and the development of it is so interesting and really well done and probably also created while on acid. (laughs) Um, And I think that it really goes to show that uh, you can analyze literally like spice, spice alone to no end uh, because it's it's that fascinating. It's kind of like in Lord of the Rings, all of the, the... like representations in mythology and like what does the one ring itself actually represent and all the the deep lore that Tolkien went back and bothered to write to make the world feel that much more alive yeah Uh, so I'm I guess (laughs) wrapping all the way back to when you asked me if I was cynical about Dune at the very beginning uh I think that I'm glad that 
Dune is probably finally getting the credit it deserves for being sci-fi Lord of the Rings because it deserves credit for that. Uh, it deserves credit for all of the world building that it went on to inspire for future sci-fi. And I think that that's cool to see. At the same time, echoing what I said at the very beginning, I'd like to see more fresh things get their turn as well. Because Dune has had many, many chances at this point. (laughs) And finally it gets it right after like three or four attempts. Um, So, you know, I hope that Dune has its time. the, The 2020s will perhaps be a very Dune decade in terms of its popularity. And then I hope that we are able to swiftly move on to things that are, I don't know, I guess just a little bit different or a little bit fresher, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because that's definitely one thing. A lot of people have been uh, criticizing it for being a little too typical and a little too predictable. And then you have the other side of that argument of people saying like, oh, well, you know, it was the first one of its kind, you know, it inspired all these other things that you're into. And I get that, but I I think it's just that it was time for this piece of work to have like a proper adaptation that wasn't compromised in any way. And now that it is finally getting that, we could, like you said, kind of put it to bed and and move on from it, hopefully. But um, that also depends how everything goes with Dune Part 2. Hopefully everything goes smoothly with it. Yeah, I also, I, I also like, I feel, I don't know, I feel bad maybe sometimes because like I've, I've read Dune 12, 13 years ago. So it's, it's been a book that's sort of been on my mind or not on my mind, but in my mind for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think I constantly forget that there are people like Ken out there who this is their sort of their introduction to Dune. Yeah. And so I don't, when I say that it's like I hope that it has its time in the sun and then we move along it's like I don't want to cut people's enjoyment of it short especially if they're just discovering it for like the first time because Mm -hmm. it is a pretty cool property to discover for the first time because it's so deep yeah uh but yeah I I think that I think we all kind of echoed the the sentiment at the beginning that it's like there are a lot of cool things out there that haven't gotten adaptations let alone all of the cool stories that like people are writing every day and hollywood is too scared to make a movie of Mm -hmm. because they want something like cinderella and uh yeah i don't know i i guess sometimes i get like a little sad or i guess appropriate to the title cynical about like seeing all of these things just they repeat like there are what 25 bond movies now it's like how many bond movies do we need uh you know it's i it's a weird balance to respect people who are just discovering this as a new story while also being like okay but let's be real here it's not a new story it's very monomyth can we please do something else it's a weird balance to strike and i think that if i'm being self-aware uh, I'm biased too much towards the latter. So, yeah. Yeah, and same here. I mean, if we were having these discussions several years ago, I probably would be all for this and more things like it just because I liked a lot of uh, conventions and norms and traditions back in the day. But these days I am trying to challenge myself uh, to like look for different things in stories. 
So I'm definitely all aboard that train now of like wanting new stuff that really like challenges my way of thinking, which Dune as a property does a little, but not not as much, I think, as I would hope these days. But don't worry, Ken and Henry. We have the live adaptation or live action adaptation of Cowboy Bebop on the way. That oh, yeah. nice. <laughs> That'll be very interesting. <laughs> oh, sorry, I just had to throw that one in there as a pot shot to Netflix. <laughs> it is it, it is very interesting. I'm a big fan of the original series and how yeah, faithful they're trying to be, at least from the trailer. I'm like surprised. Yeah, they recreated the whole opening sequence, like almost beat for beat, right? Like the opening credits yep. with the song. Yeah, using the same yeah. music and all, and like very similar outfits. Um, and that's interesting because um, I, I don't know if like um, everything from an anime, anime translates well into live action if you right. take it beat by beat. But um, I'm intrigued to see that. It's also interesting how they casted an actor who's 50 years old to play the protagonist. I forget his right, because because in the series he's supposed to be like around twenty seven or so. Right. Uh, so yeah, but hey, to be fair, like usually, um, they they cast like much younger actors for like older roles too. Like uh, Hollywood has uh, a way of like playing around with age of characters and like yeah. uh, the actors. Yeah, it's a little weird, but <laughs> the older you yeah. get, the more and more you notice it. I, I realize because when I was a kid, I was oblivious to all that stuff, but now that I'm older, I'm like, wait a minute. Those aren't actually high schoolers. <laughs> Wait a second. Yeah, you have the. I think high school uh, movies and TV shows are the guiltiest of that of just having like way older actors play like seventeen-year-olds, sixteen-year-olds. Yeah. Unless if you're Tom Holland and you have an infinite baby face, then yes. he's then <laughs> he's is sold as a teenager perfectly well. Yeah. I wonder if that's. And, gonna- and- bite him in the long run though <laughs> you know like, yeah like being typecasted as this kid because most yeah. of the movies he's been in he's kind of been the goofy kid right yeah i've um <laughs> sorry dune we uh we got a little <laughs> we'll, we'll get but, back uh, on that but uh, go uh, ahead i was going to say i saw him in uh what is the move the devil may come or, or the devil the devil made me do it maybe i think the... no no, no that's that's that? conjuring the devil uh, and i uh, I can't remember it. Whatever it is, it yeah. has devil in the title. Yeah. And like, he's... oh, the devil all the time. The devil. Devil all the time. All the time. That's what it is. Yeah. Uh, it's him and Robert Pattinson, I think. Yep. And yep. Spider Man and Batman. Like he, yes. Uh, <laughs> he's. Oh, we'll have to do an episode about Batman. Uh, yep. but uh, he's. I think he's like actually what his age is in that, or maybe a couple years younger. But like while I was watching it, I was just like oh my gosh, he looks so young. Like, why is he wielding a gun? That's not safe. Like, why is an eight-year-old holding a gun? <laughs> What's going on? Yeah. But, yeah, I don't know if it'll bite him in the long run. But obviously, he's also had a, a very successful career already. So, you know. Yeah. 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 <laughs> no, see, I mean, more power to him. Hopefully things go well. I know he did say that he eventually wants to move away from acting and move more towards writing and producing. He wants to start a production company with his brother and they're already like writing scripts together and stuff. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. More power to them. I'd actually like to see more. uh, I I always talk about how, when I see uh, Janelle Monae is always the example I use. I feel like she's like actually a, a very like natural creative spirit. Like she made all that music and now she's getting into acting and stuff. I always like when I see people, uh, with that creative spirit 
do those like kind of bolder ventures like getting away from acting and moving towards writing or producing or even directing it's just kind of um it's neat to see people spread their wings like that i guess yeah i agree unlike wrapping around to dune (laughs) who that is true he only makes adaptations of things like dude make your own things he says he said in an interview that he sees his movies as love letters, so that's why he only does adaptations because it's like this is a love letter to this, this is a love letter to that. And to be fair, he did say that he saw Dune specifically not only as a love letter to the book Dune, but also as like a love letter to the cinema going experience in general. So that also explains why he was so butthurt when they did the hybrid release thing. But still, I do think he overdid it with like his massive like manifesto that he wrote and published in variety magazine or whatever it was when that happened but um yeah it's just so strange uh it's like it's i don't know if either of you guys had somebody like this in your high school but i had a friend growing up in high school who was uh, like an absolute genius like he could he could just like not pay attention in any class and get literal 100s on every test like he would literally predict where lectures were gonna go in math class and stuff (laughs) But all he did was like play league, and I'm like, dude, you're yeah. you're, you're wasting your potential. Denis Villeneuve is like watching the greatest painter in the world only do refurbishments of old paintings. Yeah, and it's like, dude, can't like what what could you make if you decided to make your own thing? I I can't help but wonder. But maybe I don't know. Maybe he isn't like a Maybe he isn't very good at like original script writing. Who knows? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, he doesn't. He also doesn't really write his own scripts. He, you know, he hires other writers and things like that, which is fine. You know, if the, you know, if he wants to just keep his focus on the camera, you know. But uh, I do actually know two people exactly like what you just described when you were talking about your high school friend. I knew them in college, and yeah, I, I do notice that like a lot of really really smart people tend to not actually like use their talents all that much. They seem to be. It's almost like. The smarter you are, the less motivated you become, as conflicting as that sounds. I, I think it's because, like, smart people tend to be more, like, jaded. Like, they just kind of, like, look at life and they're just like, eh, fuck this. And they're just kind of, like, going with emotions. I wonder if, like, for Villeneuve, like, just adapting other people's work is just, like, in a way, him going through the motions. I don't know. Yeah. And to be fair, I think there is some merit to being, like, a specialist at adapting things. And mm-hmm. be able True. to create different yeah. concepts and like, you know, like refining them. That is a talent on itself. And kind of like we were saying, Tom, also like maybe that doesn't necessarily uh, translate well when doing original work. Maybe it does, uh, but maybe it's also like a, like a specialty that's separate that it wouldn't, he wouldn't necessarily be able to make something great original. But it definitely would be interesting to like see him try. Yeah, yeah, I don't I don't know if there's anything in his filmography that's like totally original. Maybe I'll have to like go back and see if maybe there is. like his early French short films. Exactly. Like I'd th- be really it. curious to see if they're like interesting or intriguing. But yeah. that is a good point that you made, Ken, is there is merit to being the guy that everyone respects for their ability to take someone else's idea and make it this really uh, engaging, like, cinematic experience. So, I guess, 
again, it's a situation where perhaps I'm sort of just innately biased towards people making their own or new things. Whereas, yeah, exactly. I, I, I actually really hadn't considered too much of the merit of being the, there does ultimately have to be a person who refurbishes the Mona Lisa. So <laughs> I guess he's that guy. Um, so there yeah. you go. Yeah, <laughs> and I mean, all of his upcoming projects are that too, because he's doing Dune Part Two, and then after that, he's going to do Dune Messiah, which is the second Dune book, but he wants to adapt it as the third movie, so that'll like round it off as a trilogy, and then, um, and then after that, he wants to do a Cleopatra movie, and funny enough, Patty Jenkins is also doing a Cleopatra movie, so it'd be funny if both of those come out at the same time. So. You know, I've always wondered how that happens sometimes in Hollywood, where like multiple studios kind of like just work on the same idea, the same it property. Happens. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Bugs Life and Ants both came out around the same time. Uh, yeah. Armageddon and Deep Impact, uh, <laughs> Friends with Benefits and No Strings Attached. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and what was another one? Oh yeah, White House Down and Olympus Has Fallen. <laughs> That's the one I was going to say. Yeah. Yeah. It it seems yeah. like maybe what happens is that somebody is running around with a script, and then either somebody like steals it or somebody they like helped work on the script is like, oh screw you, your script. Like I want to be the main guy, so they like change it a little bit. Yeah, and that, then they that's... both start running around studios pitching it at once. That's and... what happened with Bugs Life and Ants. That's exactly what happened, like to a T. What you just described. Yeah, it's like I guess that that's just a a thing that kind of is an unavoidable part of the business of filmmaking and screenwriting. Is yeah, that you end up with competition. Yep. Yeah. Uh, there were hey, two. Hey, Go ahead. Sorry, continue. No, no, no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is why we got to be careful when we have three people on this show. Yeah, <laughs> and when uh, we're both like, you know, nice trying to like see yeah, uh, exactly. the conversation. To to no, you go ahead. <laughs> anyway, you were going to say you're the uh, guest, so you talk. Yeah, uh, I was just gonna say how it's interesting how um, when you have two movies that are very similar, they can be competitive t- towards one another, which can be bad in the sense that you're stealing audience from another. Yeah. It can be good in the sense that, like, uh, you um, you kind of, like, create more attention to the genre that you're trying to um, adapt and bring to life. Um, kind of how, like, sometimes when you go to a plaza, there's multiple clothing shops. They're all competing for one another, but because they're all in the same area, everyone's right. more interested in, you know, buying those clothes. Um, and lastly, how inevitably, if you are the better adaptation, you will always have people comparing you to this other movie and yeah. saying, like, it's just better. So it can be good or bad for you. Those are all very good points to bring up. Yeah. Yeah. What were you going to say, Henry? Yeah. <laughs> uh, now I forget. I think I might. I think I was going to say something stupid. Like <laughs> I was going to talk about how that uh, Spielberg Lincoln movie came out at the same time as Abraham Lincoln Vampire Slayer. <laughs> That's a fun <laughs> contrast right there. <laughs> oh, so, so Ken was like actually trying to further the conversation and make good points and you were just going to make a meme. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ken should be the host of this show. Fine. No. <laughs> no, actually, no, but what I was going to say though is that it does happen a lot with uh, adaptations of like old uh, public domain work uh like i remember there were two snow white movies at the same time there were almost two jungle book movies at the same time and one of them had to be delayed a little bit and then ended up getting pushed to netflix anyways because of it was just being compared way too much to the disney live action jungle book so i've noticed that with public domain work in particular you're treading some dangerous waters there because if it's public domain and if anybody can make an adaptation of it at any time there's no rights to it 
you know, like if you're not careful, I remember like one time there was like five different Robin Hood movies all announced at the same time. And like only one or two of them ended up happening. But like, imagine if all five of them happened, like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> who asked for that? Who asked for more Robin Hood? I don't That's know. At the same time. Sorry, continue. No, 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 you're the guest. Continue. <laughs> I remember that era. And like, it was funny how like, I was saying, like, why are there so many Robin Hood, like, properties? Like, who who was asking for all of this? Um, where yeah. is the interest? <laughs> yeah, well, I-, I was actually going to say, I feel a little bit, maybe maybe I'm, like, disconnected from what the, the, the market wants right now. But I feel like that's happening with some properties. The one that pops into mind is Star Trek. Aren't there, like, eight different Star Trek series going on right now? Like, there's, like, Star they're, Trek. They're coming Dex. down. Yeah, yeah, they're coming down the pipeline, yeah. Yeah, and it's like, okay, don't get me wrong. Huge fan of Star Trek The Next Generation. I've been going through it recently. I'm in, like, season three now. Huge fan. I had never watched it before. But I do have to wonder, who the heck is asking for all this Star Trek? Like, how do we need, do we really need, like, Discovery, Picard, Lower Decks, uh, uh, Worf's uh, hotel, uh, <laughs> Picard two. Like, what, what, what do we, what do we need all of this Star Trek for? Yeah. And I feel like that happens with. Um, I feel like there's a big rush in Hollywood now when something is popular. We are going to make as many spinoffs as the, as we can of this. I think that it's happening with John Wick. They're making like a prequel John Wick. And like also a TV series, or maybe those are the same thing. I don't those know. Those are the same thing. The TV show okay. is the prequel, but they're also doing John Wick Four. They're doing the Anna de Armas spinoff. They're yeah, talking that's about doing yeah. uh, a crossover between John Wick and and Bob Odenkirk's character from the Nobody movie. Yeah, yeah, and it's like I I obviously know that this has sort of always been a thing. As you just pointed out, there were like I remember that era of like five different Robin Hood movies, and I was like, who cares about Robin Hood anymore? <laughs> yeah. But like. It happens even now. It's like, okay, I get it. We all love Keanu Reeves. He's great. But does do we need like Mel Gibson in John Wick? Do we need Anna de Armas in Bond slash John Wick? Do we need Bob Odenkirk's standalone movie, I thought, being in John Wick? <laughs> it's very strange how there's like a there's like a a business rush to like it's like they're trying to turn everything into the MCU. Like it's the John That's Wick cinematic exactly universe. Exactly what they're trying to do. I mean, yeah, the MCU like... is right now the most successful franchise for a reason. Not not that it's a good thing, but just it is what it is. And you know, they these people pay attention to the numbers first and foremost. So, yeah, I remember looking up recently that uh, the MCU has like totaled like 22 billion in net revenue and i, I yeah, looked something. it up and like that's like that's like larger than like the bottom 30 countries gdps like right. the Marvel cinematic universe <laughs> is a nation state yeah no it's true man i mean and they've become like a, a factory at this point dude it's insane but that that's a whole uh, other conversation in and of itself the whole marvel thing i was actually talking to uh another friend of mine, uh, the one that we had mentioned in the Bond episode, Tom, and he was saying, like, we could basically just do our whole podcast just about Marvel because <laughs> there's just so much to talk about there with, like, all the things they're doing and how it's good and bad for Hollywood and stuff like that. 
Yeah, which I guess is actually kind of an interesting thing about um, about Dune is that it's like there's currently two massive behemoths, I would say, right now. It's like Star Wars and uh, the MCU. And I think that both are sort of fading a little bit in terms of popularity. Yeah. Um, obviously, The Mandalorian was super popular, but I think that there's been a little bit of an interest drop since baby yoda's saying bye-bye um <laughs> and uh the mcu i think that no way home that's the next one right not far from yep. home. yeah no way home yeah. i think no way home will be very well received i think that the tom holland peter parker is generally like a well-received character um i think that the formula that they're going for will be kind of big i mean people have been making memes of the doc ock thing already anytime you see memes that's a good sign yeah um but eternals wasn't received very well so there's like a bit of a hiccup there yeah and i'm that's been something that's been interesting about dune come out is that i was almost wondering if warner brothers is hoping to capitalize on maybe the fading popularity of Star Wars a little bit to do Dune. But at the same time, I don't think that Villeneuve is interested in that at all. He's not, Which is is like sort of a competing thing is that you've got this person who's a massive fan of Dune to his credit. I mean, that's awesome that he's a big fan and wants to, you know, bring it to life. Um, And he's this master adapter, as we were discussing. But he's also like not really interested in the like business analytics side. Yeah, of he, he recently shat on Marvel for that very reason. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. So uh, it's a weird thing is that um, Dune is maybe I don't think it really is succeeding at it yet. Maybe we'll see it. It will succeed with Part Two or Messiah, but it seems like it's trying to be the up and coming like pillar. Cause there's also that TV show, right? They're making the, a yeah. spinoff show about the Benny Jesuit. I don't know exactly. if you knew about that, Ken, the, uh, but they are making a spinoff show about those space, which oh, I didn't know about that. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So like, it'll be interesting to see if it can come into its own and be like its own large property that people want to see more from. But at the same time, as if it becomes that, Villeneuve will move on to doing Cleopatra and whatnot. So I'm wondering if it can survive without such like a mega fan who's been yeah, dreaming yeah, yeah. of doing this for so long right. at the helm. Because right now he is kind of the pseudo Kevin Feige of that stuff. Because even though he uh, is not directly involved with that Benny Gesserit show, he still is like listed as the executive producer on it. And I think he's attached to direct the pilot episode of it i believe so he is still involved even with that stuff but he said after messiah he's checking out like he's checking out completely he's not he doesn't give a shit about children of dune or god emperor of dune or any of that stuff and that, and that's another problem is that this if they continue on the path of the books the books get fucking weird like ken do you remember i was explaining like what happens in some of the later books to you like yeah they start transporting worms and reviving characters. Yep. And and one of the characters turns into a giant human worm hybrid and all kinds of, yeah. <laughs> well, and I mean it, like all you need to know, and I don't I don't want to like get into spoilers here at all because uh, you know, Dune Part Two is like actually coming out or whatever. But yeah. all you need to know is that Dune Part Two will probably get much weirder than the first movie. Oh yeah, even that. That's and true. then on top of that, Messiah will get even weirder. 
and then it only gets weirder from there. Like, yeah, it, God, God Emperors, when the fourth book, which I guess in these terms would be the fifth movie if they make it that far, that's like that's where they jump off the deep end. That's the point of no return. I, I will be shocked if they make it to God Emperor, to be honest. I don't I don't think they will. I, I think that yeah. I think that uh I think that Villeneuve's vision of it will kind of come true. But I, I'm like even if they end at Messiah, I, I'm still in the camp that it's like I think it's gonna be a hard sell to casual audiences like Messiah because Messiah gets weird. Uh, yeah, Messiah yeah. is basically Last Jedi on steroids with how controversial it is. <laughs> yes, <laughs> some fucked exactly. up shit happens in it. Yeah, so I'll be, uh, I'll definitely be looking forward to seeing if Dune can sort of rise to the occasion of being its own. I don't even know what you would call it, like a little like keystone of like of like culture, like there's. There's like these different keystones, like Bond is this massive franchise, Star Wars is this massive franchise, the MCU impressively in like 13 years has turned itself from nothing into a massive franchise. Uh, DC tried to make itself into a keystone and kind of fell on its face. Um, I'll be interested to see if Dune can do it because, I don't know, it's, I don't think as like, I think if you told me 10 years ago, like Dune will be this thing that will b- break into the mainstream, I would be like, uh, are we talking about the same Dune? Right. Whereas now, I can sort of see it happening. I mean, I've seen generally positive feedback on yeah. Dune. Uh, it's got all these prominent names attached to it. So maybe. Yeah, and like we said, he, you know, even though he was faithful to the source material, he he changed things where it was appropriate to kind of fit with the, you know, what people are looking for these days. I think that was a very important part in all this too. Yep. Yeah. So, but I mean, I don't know if they're going to be able to keep it up because, like you said, even in Dune Part Two, okay, minor spoilers, uh, at least in the book, the second half of the book, which you know will be the second movie, they all have a, an orgy at one point. There's like this <laughs> massive orgy, like. Are they going to do that? Like, are we going to see that? Like, I... well, and also, yeah. I, well, I mean, again, without getting into spoilers, just like weird character developments happen, and then yeah, it gets um, yeah. Uh, there's like, there's stuff that happens that is like a combination of character development and weird lore development where like even when you're reading it you're like uh okay so like it'll be really hard to convey that in a movie especially in a movie that hasn't been emphasizing the conveying the lore much so um yeah i'll i'll be interested to see how that turns out because uh there's i don't know it's it's a bit of a minefield. The Dune is weird enough that you definitely have to be very careful with what you do and don't adapt because if you adapt too much, you end up being really incoherent. And if you adapt too little, then you're not really Dune and you can really quickly get off track. So, yeah. Yeah. It'd be interesting to see also if in the future audiences change and kind of would appreciate kind of like movies kind of like challenging more norms and being different, like being yeah, more uh, positively receptive about these things. I mean, like, um, I don't have knowledge of like these things that you guys know about the books, but just how like uh, cautious you guys are about it, like it almost sounds like I would want to see it. I would want to <laughs> see it. It kind of blows my mind. 
Be careful what yeah. you wish for. I don't know if you yeah. want to see this massive spice orgy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I do know what you mean, though. Like, um, there's there's a bit of like a, a a danger to it almost. That's like, ooh, what 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 does happen in God Emperor or whatever? Like, you know. Yeah. And it would be cool. It. <laughs> It's really hard to do. I mean, obviously, I'm not a director. I don't know how I would do it at all. But it would be really cool to see somebody capture the, like, absolute bonkersness of especially, like, later Dune books, but in a vaguely digestible way. Because that is one of the best things about Dune is that even though I've been comparing it to Lord of the Rings, Lord of the Rings generally plays its, like themes pretty close to its chest like it doesn't it doesn't get into anything it's not like frodo's like snorting coke like before he's wandering into mordor or anything like that whereas Mm. in dune they basically do that like yes they regularly consume drugs before anything what like important plot moments sometimes the important plot moment is the consumption of drugs yeah yeah like so it would be interesting to see something get really wacky with like how psychedelic like really um scale up the psychedelicness of dune without being too like without being just completely incoherent but as i said at the beginning i have no idea how you would do that uh it's i mean that just seems like an impossible task yeah um yeah, I, I don't think they're going to make it all the way to the end. That's for sure. Uh, Frank Herbert himself, the original author, wrote six books in the main series. And then, then he passed away. And then his son has since been writing a bunch of spinoff books, including one that's all about the Space Witches. I assume that's the one that's going to be used as the template for the show. Um, but uh, the son also wrote two more books in the main series, but they're super controversial. So. And, you know, given how we saw things go with the Star Wars sequel trilogy and people complaining that it didn't have enough of the original creator's influence after scaring that guy away in the first place, uh, you know, I I can't see them making it all the way to Dune 7 and 8. Or I guess in the case of the movies, it would be Dune 8 and 9. I can't see them making it that far. So, Oh, that is something that I really wanted to quickly say that I haven't gotten the opportunity to say, is that uh, for everybody out there, all two people that listen to this uh no we got like 14 plays on the last episode we're doing oh, okay um, yeah. <laughs> uh, for all the people out there who say that it's like oh star wars is dune or dune inspired star wars i oh, think God. that the influence of dune on star wars is way smaller than a lot of the other things that influence star wars i would almost put dune at the bottom of like Obviously, there are more than four things, but I would say that the main, like the biggest four, are like Flash Gordon, samurai movies, World War Two, and then maybe after that, Dune. Uh, yes. Yeah, I would. I, I as I've been saying multiple times throughout this, I think this is like the fourth or fifth time. I think the much fairer comparison is that Dune is sci-fi Lord of the Rings. It is super deep world building not much character development monomyth right yeah yeah like you said star wars was inspired by many things a lot of what you just said kurosawa movies yes dune itself was an influence the main influence was definitely flash gordon because star wars was originally supposed to be a flash gordon movie but lucas couldn't get the rights to it so he 
said, okay, I'm just going to make my own Flash Gordon. And that's basically how Star Wars happened. Uh, but yes, he did pull in different influences to help make it more and more unique so that it wouldn't, you, you know, because he probably didn't want to get sued <laughs> by whoever owned the rights to Flash Gordon. At the <laughs> right. Time. So, um, you know, Valerian was a popular French comic series that definitely had some influence on Star Wars. Same with DC's New God comics, uh, like spaghetti Western movies. I remember I said that on my blog a while back, too. Uh, You know, so uh, it's funny because, like, they're making a Flash Gordon reboot right now, or at least it's in the it's in talks. I don't know if it'll actually happen or not. But if it does happen in like five or six years from now, I assume by that point, most people will have forgotten about Dune and they're going to start saying like, oh, did you know that Flash Gordon inspired Star Wars? It inspired Star Wars. And then somebody's going to be like, I thought Dune inspired Star Wars. Like, it's just going to get all confusing. Ken, yeah. did you uh, uh, when you were watching the movie? Did you feel that it was like Star Wars prototype? Like, did you get that impression from it, or? Uh, not really. I just viewed them like very separately. I didn't really think about Star Wars that much. Um, the closest, I guess, the Benny Jessier. Yeah. Like having like powers, maybe a bit more like Jedi Sith. Um, but not not much more beyond that. Yeah, I definitely think the Benny Jesuit might have had some influence on the Jedi. I think the initial inspiration for the Jedi was Lucas was like, I'm going to combine wizards with samurai. And then the Benny Jesuit might have influenced some things like the mind trick powers and things like that. But, and being able to predict the future and, you know, see the past and all that. But Yeah, the, the, big, the big influences on Star Wars that I've ever noticed from Dune are the Benny Jesuit, obviously you know definitely have similarities to the jedi um and then tatooine uh and the 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 importance of like moisture on arrakis and on dune there's or on uh, on tatooine there's like moisture farming and stuff yes Um, but i do think even that's blown out of proportion because tatooine is not yes to us the audience is a super important planet because that's where like all the jesus characters come from (laughs) um to the universe of star wars itself nobody gives a fuck about tatooine yeah whereas arrakis is very important exactly exactly yeah actually yeah people have been like making up a lot of shit in their head recently like i was watching i know i shouldn't be watching reaction videos but i was watching a dune reaction video a group of people reaction reacting to it and somebody was trying to like emphasize the similarities to star wars they were saying like oh it's like a desert planet where the empire is trying to deplete its resources and it's like what when in star wars was the empire trying to deplete Tatooine's resources. Yeah, they Tatooine went, doesn't have resources. As exactly. Far as you know. Like, what are these yeah. people talking about? And like, there's one. There's one point in the Doom movie where Jason Momoa is getting chased by a laser, and somebody was like, "It's like the Death Star." No, I. The Death Star blows you up instantly. Like, it's not. <laughs> so people like they really like to stretch the truth to like justify their arguments. I've noticed, especially nowadays, like in this like Reddit culture that we live in. I don't just don't mind me ranting, but. No, I, I know what you mean is that um, there's a little bit of like a fandom culture where there's this there's this interest in making it feel like everything is connected and everything is inspired by everything so that like you're part of this ecosystem. Yeah. And uh, while there are true elements that like I would probably stand by the fact that Tatooine being a desert planet is likely a bit of a reference to Dune. But beyond that, there really aren't that many similarities. Uh, what I pointed out about the moisture farming and like the, you know, everybody has to wear those nose plugs on, on Arrakis so that they don't like leak all their moisture out into the, 
dry air or whatever. But um, other than that, there, as you pointed out, like Tatooine's a backwater and it doesn't even have water. So it's just back. Uh, and like, it's, 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 it's irrelevant. The empire goes there by incident. Like, the, yeah, the the rebels are literally running by it and launch an escape pod down to it, and the Empire's like, ah, crap, we need to go down to that place. Like, yeah, it's, it's not relevant at all. Whereas Arrakis is like the heart of the entire thing that the 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 Emperor and the Empire in Dune are after. So it's very not comparable. But yeah, people, I I, I think it's part of like the Easter egg sort of culture. So. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. But um, another thing is that the actually more of the parallels between Dune and Star Wars come in the Star Wars sequels, like starting with Empire Strikes Back and onward. And it's actually a lot of the, the shitty stuff about Star Wars that comes from Dune, like Anakin being the, the stupid chosen one messiah. In Dune, it's handled a little more tastefully because it explores the idea of like how chosen ones are bad and also like how they can be mechanically engineered. Cause like it, the Benny Gesserit kind of like pulled all the strings there, but in the prequel trilogy, Anakin is just a generic chosen one, but like Luke himself, if you watch a new hope in a vacuum, not even a new hope, if you watch the entire original trilogy in a vacuum and, and forget that the prequels exist for a second, there is no like chosen one prophecy Messiah crap. Like Luke just kind of like gets pulled into all this. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. When I was talking about Star Wars, I was actually really only talking about the first Star Wars movie. Um, yeah, I, think yeah, yeah. That, I think that my bias has leaked into the fact that I'm like, no, no, not the rest of Star Wars doesn't exist. But uh, yeah, yeah w- uh, really quick, what did you what did you mean by I, I know what you mean by the the Benny that there's like the theme in Dune that the 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 um, myth or like the prophecy is sort of like this like cr- artificial thing. Yep. Uh, what did you mean by the like the theme that like being a messiah is bad though? Because uh, the whole thing about well, not that it's bad that it has consequences. Because I I guess the movie didn't touch on this too much, but in the book it's explained how Paul could see the future and he knows that by becoming the leader of the Fremen and leading them to victory, it's going to cause a holy war in his name that spreads across the entire galaxy and 60 billion people die in the process, which to be fair, like in, in the Dune universe, there's like trillions upon trillions of humans at this point in the future. Cause they've spread across like literally the entire universe. I think even beyond the galaxy, like they're in multiple galaxies. So 60 billion people is actually not that bad in the grand scheme of things, but it's still, you know, 60 billion lives that are in Paul's on Paul's hands, you know? Okay. So. I, I see what you're saying. I, I wanted to, I wanted to ask it because one, one, the only element of preparation that I did <laughs> for this was that <laughs> I read, I'm going to shamelessly plug your blog. I read Ooh. your blog uh, your blog post about Dune. And something that I wanted to discuss that I've forgotten so far to discuss was that in the in your blog post, uh, I think that you sort of touch on that. And but but you say like it's a deconstruction of like the Messiah or like the hero's journey sort of thing. And I don't I I, I think that I would say that it isn't really a deconstruction so much as like if you think about Lord of the Rings, you know how at the end Frodo goes back to the Shire and he like realizes that he can't adapt back into the Shire life. Like, yep, yeah, I think that. And in, uh, I know you haven't watched all of Avatar: Last Airbender, but in Avatar: The Last Airbender, there's like sort of this through line that it's like 
he can't go back to being a kid ever since he's been told he's the avatar. Mm. I was going to say, I don't think that that I, I think that you're right in that that is a theme in Dune, but I don't think that that's a de- deconstruction of the monomyth so much as it is just a core element of it. The, yeah. the, the fact that you can't go back or like that there are consequences to becoming the hero or the messiah is like, it's actually the, an element of the hero's journey that Star Wars messes up in that the only implication that Luke realizes that he can't adapt back into life by the end of the story is that at the end of Return of the Jedi, there's that sequence where he's looking at the force ghosts of all of his buddies. And then Leia comes over and like touches him on the shoulder. And he's like, oh crap, I'm, I have to go back to reality. I forgot. Like, and then he, he kind of like, it all, it's almost like he sort of reluctantly joins the rest of the cast. That's mm. the only indication of that step in the hero's journey where it's like, you can't go back now. You've been changed. That's the only step, the part where that exists. So it's almost like star Wars is actually the bad deconstruction of the monomyth because it skips an important step. That's a very interesting beat. Even though then the sequel trilogy, whether people like it or not, did kind of expand on that a little more with Luke that I think lines up a little more with what you're saying. Uh, More in the sense that like he thought he could restart the Jedi Order and realizing that it wasn't going to be as simple as he anticipated it to be. Yeah, you could make that point that um, in a way, Ryan Johnson added a bit of that disappointing beat to the hero's journey because it's it's actually an interesting thing that one thing that I am glad that that Dune is just sort of a a monomyth story is that it the the fact that the hero's journey is actually sort of a bad thing is something that is overlooked in a lot of like people's perceptions of what the hero's journey is like, yeah whereas to me personally again i'm not the huge the, the biggest fan of of lord of the rings i think it's very good at, at what it is but i'm not that interested in it I actually think the best moment of Lord of the Rings, like the whole thing that sort of like makes it feel like something happened at the end of it is that Frodo has sort of like lost his innocence in a way because it, I don't know. It, um, I feel like that's the part of the monomyth that makes the stories feel very much like life. It's, um, it's like that, billy joel like scenes from italian restaurant song where it's like the two people who were like high school sweethearts go back to the town and then there's like a line in the song but it's like but you can never go back again and it's Mm. like um frodo has had this magical adventure and he's made these friends and everything which is amazing but there's a huge part of them that's been lost and similar with paul it's like he was living his normal life and it's really cool that he's been like adopted into the Fremen and met Chani and all these things. But like at the end of the day, it's like being a Messiah actually sucked in a way. So yeah, uh, yeah I don't know. I, I guess that's the only thing that I wanted to comment on from your blog post was that, uh, yeah, I think that that's a pretty normal thing in the hero's journey that people just forget is there. Yeah. You're probably right that I was looking at it more from like a star Warsian kind of watered down version of it without recognizing the fact that that nuance already existed in, in stories long before, you know, now really. So, uh, go ahead, Ken. Oh, I was just going to say, and it'll be interesting to see how they develop it further in the movies, because while they don't explore it too deeply in the movies, there is that one scene of where he has the vision and he sees the future, the one you were talking about where like, 
hundreds of millions of people will be dying on his name and he starts screaming as it being a nightmare saying like you know all these yeah. wars will be happening because of me um and yeah that'll definitely have like big implications on like how he feels about being this messiah or hero but we also haven't seen like paul be too loving of like in general like regular people and it'll be interesting to see like how they explore that saying like you know he feels bad about it uh but what real connection does he have with like regular people um yeah so most of his life he's been trained to be this hero this messiah he's been a noble from birth so he's never had that much of a big connection with uh more regular folk and i guess he will now in the second movie now that he's uh traveling with the fremen um but it'll be interesting to see how it keeps developing in the next movies yeah that's Mm. a that's a really good like observation ken i'm i'm kind of glad that you picked up on that and i agree with you that i hope villeneuve does that well because one thing that i would say about the dune book that is not a very good part of it is that it's very like Lawrence in Arabia, like white savior gone yeah. tribal sort of thing. And he very much does not connect with the Fremen. He doesn't. Um, no. Just Johnny. He just like want, likes fucking Johnny. And that's, that's about it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he, he likes, he, he likes, you know, having, having sex with Johnny he, in, the, in the, in the future, uh, you know, she like stays as his concubine sort of thing. Yeah. That's going to be difficult um, for them to kind of address in the movies. When yeah, they get to so Messiah, yeah. I hope that, uh, I hope that if there's, I hope that one of those 14 people that will listen to this is Denis Villeneuve <laughs> so that he can hear what you just said, Ken, and go like, Oh crap. I need to actually make Paul be sympathetic to the, the common folk. Um, because that's a very important note to hit. Yeah, the the source material does not hit it. Yeah, and it's not it's not in the Lynch versions. It's not in the miniseries. I could confirm that having seen all those. There is no like beat of him like looking out for the little guy. It's just not there. It's just right as soon as he joins the Fremen, they're automatically just like, you're awesome. And he's just kind of like, yeah, I'm awesome. And then just goes from there. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's, it's, and they, let's all have an orgy. <laughs> We're awesome. <laughs> I'm still not letting that one go. I, when I saw it, I was, I was just like, what the fuck is happening? <laughs> uh Ken, when you were watching the movie, did you get the idea of it being like a deconstructionist thing? Or did you just feel like you were watching like any ordinary hero's journey? That just might be a little more self-aware. Yeah, honestly, just any ordinary hero's journey. Um, and again, I think a big reason for that is because I don't see him develop too much as a character. Uh, his connections with that many people, and especially the Fremen. Like you were mentioning, how like the Fremen are supposed to just meet him and be like, "Oh, you're great," and that is kind of how it goes. They're like, "Whoa, you can put on that suit really well without us telling you how to do that." Yeah. Um, and so. They like because everyone treats him like this amazing person, and he's presented in that way. He really comes off as a bit unrelatable, and I'm just I know that kind of like what Tom was saying. He is a piece in like uh, a chessboard, and I just know he has to become the hero. But there's nothing making me really root for him, saying like I want him as my hero. Yeah, yeah. I would say I would actually say here I'm going to do another plug for you, Henry. Uh, no, thanks. <laughs> I, I think that I think that in I forget if it was I, I, I think it would be in real enough your your latest book. Mm-hmm. Um, there was some piece that you did where somebody almost like gets rejected by like they they believe they're the hero. 
and then it like turns out that they've that they've been rejected by it or like that they aren't and it's like that's more of like a deconstructionist piece where it's yeah like you're the river blade up... is is the river blade the story you were thinking yes of? that's exactly what i was thinking of the river blade mm-hmm. um and it's like that's more of a deconstructionist piece is like you have to i i think that what you're being a little bit more uh self-aware is probably a good way to put it i would say that yeah. dune is probably self-aware in the way that like avatar the last airbender is as i said ang from the get-go like doesn't want to be the hero because he thinks it sucks and he's right because all that like responsibility and like the consequences yeah. of you know attacking bossing say and all of these places and like wherever he goes the fire nation will follow him and destroy stuff in an attempt to follow or like in an attempt to find him and capture him or whatever and that's the hero's journey but like ingraining the badness of it directly into the story as opposed to saving it for the end like uh tolkien did in lord of the rings where it's just one beat where it's like oh this is bad and then he it ends yeah so dune is more just it's it's kind of like avatar the last airbender the badness is infused through the plot as opposed to being saved for the end i don't personally from what i remember of dune i don't remember almost anything being deconstructionist i i think it plays it very straight um it's kind of hard when you think about it it was like 1965 how yeah the idea of deconstructionism didn't even exist in the 60s to be fair yeah well and also like how could he be deconstructing the hero's journey when like the hero's journey barely existed yet right as like an identified thing so yeah i think that the way you put it that it's like the hero's journey but the it's self-aware or like uh it's here the hero's journey but the badness is like inserted into the story so that you as the audience get a sense of it. I think that's the better way to state it. I think you're right. Yeah. And to be fair, there's pros and cons to either way. Cause like by doing, by having that self-awareness and things like Dune and Avatar, the last airbender, it does make the story uh, smarter, I, smarter in air quotes there. But at the <laughs> same time, like with Lord of the Rings, um, wh- having it play out as a very like vanilla hero's journey. And then suddenly having that ending beat come out of nowhere where Frodo realizes like, you know, oh shit, the Shire actually kind of sucks now. It's boring. Like, <laughs> it, it, it hits you. You know what I mean? Like, it hits yeah. you like a gut punch. Like, oof, you know. So, exactly. bo- both of those approaches are are workable, depending on, like, it, it just depends on what you as the author wants to do, you know? Uh, Yeah, I think that that's, like, a really good way to put it. Uh, yeah. At the end of Lord of the Rings, you're almost sad for Frodo. Whereas yeah. in Dune, you're, like, worried for Paul the whole time. Right. So, it's, like, different feelings. Right, right. But um, yeah, no, it'll be interesting to see like where they take it from here. We did mention uh, in Messiah, you know, like uh, I know we're trying to avoid spoilers for like the future installments for anyone who doesn't want to be spoiled. But you had made the point that in Messiah, in Messiah, Chani is is Paul's concubine, not his wife, but his concubine. He he hints at the in the movie that he thinks a good idea would be to marry the emperor's daughter for political reasons. Ken, did you notice that when you were watching the movie? He kind of mentioned that at one point. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So that, that actually does play out in the rest of the book. So that very well could be in the sequel unless Villeneuve wants to take a different direction with it. But 
I feel like that will be weird for modern audiences to see, like, because basically Zendaya becomes his side chick, not his main love interest. Or, well, no, she's still his love interest, but not his. But on the surface of the story, it doesn't appear that way because he marries the Emperor's daughter instead. So I don't know. Like, is that something that modern day audiences are going to want to digest? You know, like, well, yeah, I think I think way back at the beginning of this conversation, which I would like to say that we are 13 minutes away from it being literally the timeline. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think way back in the beginning of the conversation, either you or or Ken said very simply like Dune has like these feudal elements put into the design and marrying for political purposes while keeping somebody who is like actually your passionate lover exactly is like very 1500s so Mm uh or actually probably even earlier than that probably like very 1200s yeah so um it'll be interesting to see as you just said if if modern audiences go Oh, well, I get it. It's space feudalism. Okay. Or if they go, excuse me, Timmy Chevrolet has Zendaya as his side chick. What is <laughs> going on here? Like, it, it could go either way. Right. Um, and I don't know, like, it's it's risky business. It's one of those plot points that ends up happening in Dune that is just absolute risky business no matter what you do so i do not envy villeneuve for trying to adapt it yeah yeah and i I feel like also like they were trying to ease us into the idea with rebecca ferguson's character being like a leader's concubine but him not having a wife kind of like yeah it's not actually his wife it is a concubine but they do generally love each other so i feel like they're kind of easing us into the idea of like zendaya's character being a concubine but yeah like you said it really could go either way um i I don't know how modern audiences will be taking that yeah no i'm nervous but that's a good observation though i do think that they were planting that seed because in the movie tom they really emphasized that fact that Lido and jessica are not actually married so yeah i mean i think that i don't know personally not to not to get like identity politics with any of this i think that it hits a little bit differently when it's like a zoomer you know mixed race icon as opposed to like rebecca ferguson i don't know but um that's true yeah the race thing does make it a little problematic yeah Yeah. I'm, i'm actually i'm actually personally just really shocked that dune I'm, I don't know, with all of like the, the gone wild and white savior elements to it, I'm really shocked that it was as well received as it is in this like political climate sort of thing. Where I think casting a bunch of hot, famous people dilutes that a little bit. <laughs> I was about yeah. to say, you know, Timothee Chalamet, he just fixes all of that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, like, it seems like it's. I, I think that I think that you guys are both right. I think that it's like okay to have these sketchy plot elements as long as you're a hot white person as opposed to like a mildly attractive white person or below. Um, so it is it is a little weird. Uh, I'm surprised that I haven't seen any articles that are like, what's going on here? Why are we making this in 2021? But at the same time, I'm sort of glad that June didn't get caught up in that because 
while there is fair criticism to say that it's like the plot's very outdated, it also sounds like Villeneuve did some put some effort in to make it not just straight out of the sick. Yeah. Uh, so he deserves some credit for that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hopefully he could keep it up, you know. Uh, but yeah, Doom Part 2 and Messiah are both going to be very complicated to adapt. Is there any potential, though? I've, I've like, in my head, this is almost what happens. Is there any potential, though, that Messiah doesn't happen? Yeah, if, if Doom Part 2 doesn't make enough money, Messiah won't happen. Okay, because I was going to say, personally, my guess is that Messiah isn't going to happen in general because um, I think that, I think that, uh, probably there's just going to be like a lot of cultural shifts over the next couple years that will make theaters not as profitable anymore or anything like that. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to guess that it'll be a case of like Dune one made X number of money monies. And mm -hmm. then Dune part two will make like X minus one number of monies. And like, they'll see the downward trajectory and they'll be like, Oh, well, okay it's possible Th that's my guess because uh, i don't know i don't uh and uh, i mean really quickly i actually think that that's better for dune i think that you should only adapt the first dune book um yeah. so maybe i'm just being wishful thinking there where it's like oh please don't embarrass yourself with messiah <laughs> but uh who knows who knows yeah you never know i mean um uh, the thing about Doom Part 2 is that it's not going to be released uh, in theaters and streaming at the same time. It's going to be in theaters for 45 days first and then go to streaming right after that. But well, that's, what you say, that's what we say now. Yeah, that's Things true. Could change. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Who the hell knows? But uh, And then Villeneuve will have another massive temper tantrum. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I've always yeah. also been curious. So, sorry, uh, you finished me though. Uh, no, no, that's all I was going to say. Go ahead. Um, yeah, I've always been curious also how they count the numbers, like how much money a movie's making when it's being streamed through HBO Max, because a lot of people sign up to HBO Max to see certain movies and keep their subscription because of certain movies. So how much of that do they equate into like, quote unquote, how much money it's uh, made? Yeah, yeah, because they, they did say that for Greenlighting Dune Part 2. Uh, the the streaming numbers played a factor into that. Like they saw that a lot of people streamed the movie, and that that generated some interest on Warner Brothers' end for Greenlighting Part Two. But the thing is, is that with the streaming era, they're not uh, obligated by law to reveal those numbers. So, what mm -hmm. does a lot of numbers mean to them? Like I I have no clue. You know. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I have to admit, uh, I was I was contemplating signing up for whatever a free week of hbo max to watch dune and then cancel it um so i guess <laughs> i guess that they wouldn't make any money from me oops sorry villeneuve you already got your <laughs> sequel so you're fine um but i do i have a very similar question as ken is like what is what is the the rate of people who like sign up for HBO Max in any way that you're able to? I'm sure you're able to determine it's like they signed up on this date. They watched Dune the next day and then they either kept their subscription or they didn't. And I'm sort of wondering, it's like how many people sign up for a streaming service to watch like one thing and then don't cancel it? But at the same time, I guess like maybe after Dune finishes playing, they see something else that they want to watch. 
uh, maybe something yeah. that has Timmy Chevrolet or Zendaya in it or something like that. And they're like, <laughs> oh, they're hot. I'm going to continue watching them. So maybe, who knows? Uh, I I don't know. I'm I'm generally, because I understand streaming numbers so little, I to the limited extent that I do pay attention to box office things, I only really pay attention to news about ticket sales. So, yeah. Yeah. So I would love to keep talking, but we're less than four minutes away from our timer going out. So uh, is there anything that either of the two of you would uh, want to say about Dune? Anything else? I mean, um, no, I think, I think I got everything I wanted to say. Yeah. You too, Ken? Yeah. yeah, I'd say I'm good. Thank you very much for stimulating uh, the conversation and uh, helping me understand more about like the world of Dune and like uh, production of it. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you very much for being our first ever guest on this show. We definitely got to get you back. Uh, oh, it'd be great. It's been an absolute honor. You guys are really great. Thank you. You too. Uh, you yeah, thanks, Ken. You were, uh, yeah. you were a great guest. Uh, thanks. <laughs> okay. Well, in that case, I will catch you guys later. And to all of you listening, we will see you when we see you. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>